Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another." to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. You may be seated. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So um, yeah, just just to jump into this topic here on the front end, um, the desire to be known, I think, is a top tier conversation for us here at Mission. We're a, we're a small church. Um, and I think that it's, it's something that I know is of deep concern to many of us. Um, I shared an article uh, recently in our like, little Facebook page about well-equipped believers checking out when we need them most, which is something I've been wrestling with, actually, especially and mostly outside of our church, honestly. But, um, but when I shared it, the, I got varied feedback um, out in our kind of official body of churches. People said to me, um, the, the most common feedback I got was like, yeah, well, people have been through a lot, so, you know, it's understandable. Um, I dropped it in a bivocational leader chat room, um, and there I generally heard like, yeah, it's because the institutions of the church are terrible, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and people should leave them. And I was like, ooh, that's, that one's a little, a little dicey in there. That was the most common response I got there. But the co- most common response I got from among some of you all had to do with the idea of being known, a longing to be known. And honestly, that was my favorite uh, response because it's driven by one of our values. Um, to me, that was the, the most encouraging set of responses uh, were the ones from, from some of us. So I think some of us here at Mission have found more connection than we've ever had at a church. I think that would be some people's story. Um, I think people have come to Mission and left because you can't like hide here. It's, they're just, where do you go? Right, like, it's you know everybody's looking at you if you visit, and and I've actually heard people say, you know, if I hadn't really like swallowed the pill that people were going to ask me about my life, I don't think I could have handled coming to this little church, um, and so I, I get that too. Uh, but for others, I think among us, there's it's um, we have a deep desire that's part of why we're here. It's within the very values of the church, and when it's unmet, that can be really disappointing and it can be difficult. So as, I, as we unpack this idea of being a serving church, um, I, I just want to uh, affirm and kind of go into this and say, look, serving isn't just what we did today, like at Cyclovia, which by the way, for those of you who are there, like thank you, what a, you've, you've put in a lot of time today, and we really appreciate it. Um, serving isn't merely just doing what you've, many of you did today and making a, a cool you know, meal or an interesting dessert or whatever uh, for this meal that is serving, and that's been wonderful, and thank you for that. But there is another level of serving that we believe in very deeply, and that's where you, you give up um, your own, of your time and yourself to invest in the lives of one another. And, that's, uh, and that, that is key, I think, to us being a healthy community that grows together in our faith. So, in this evening's text that I read to you out of the book of Hebrews, I hope to apply this idea and, um, and just work out how do we pursue knowing and therefore being known. 
And, uh, and I want to look at the basis of being known, substance of being known, discipline of being known, direction of being known, and destination of being known. Two more points than a John Simon sermon normally would have, I understand. But uh, you'll forgive me, because I just felt it was there. That's what I had to do. So, um, yeah, the basis, the substance, the discipline, the direction, the destination. So first, the basis of being known out of the book of Hebrews. We read, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Um, there's a lot of, of beautiful and good theology within there that we really couldn't, should unpack. But today, I just want to state the most obvious thing that this scripture tells us, and that is that we have a common faith. Um, we have a common faith that is rooted in the work of Jesus. Um, and by that faith, we have incredible access to God. That's what is being said here to some degree. And truly, we enter into a greater experience of knowing God because of our faith. The reference here to the holy places and the curtain um, are images of the ancient Hebrew tabernacle or their mobile tent that they, that they moved around when they were uh, in between Egypt and their promised land. And then the impressive Jewish temple where only a purified high priest who represented sinful people could actually have access to God's presence, to his holiness. Um, but did you know that on the day Jesus died, the scriptures tell us that the massive and thick curtain in the temple was torn uh, from top to bottom. And that's a, that's a strangely uncontested claim uh, of the New Testament times. You'd expect for that to be written down and for people to go, no, it wasn't if it hadn't been, but people don't. And, um, and why did that happen? Why would it happen? It was deeply symbolic of a couple of things. Number one, of, of judgment uh, upon people who'd rejected Jesus. But number two, uh, that there was now access to the presence of God through Jesus. And here in Hebrews, that curtain is compared to the flesh of Jesus, that Jesus' flesh was torn and rent apart, and that was our judgment placed upon him. But now Jesus has become a way of access to God because the justice of God was satisfied in his death. And that's deep theological stuff. It's very complex. Um, But at the end of the day, it means that we have utter access to God, which is incredible. You can know God because of Jesus. You can know God the Father the way Jesus knows his Father. You can know the one who knows you most. That's an incredible, incredible statement. Now, in our day, we feel like we all should be known and seen. That's a common belief. Um, And maybe it doesn't strike strike us like it did the people who heard it back then, because Honestly, our culture, um, our assumption that we can be known deeply and that we should be seen and valued is borrowed from the culture that we're in having once been saturated in Christian assumptions. Without Christianity's insistence on the value of people being made in the image of God, without Christianity's insistence that we can be known by God, it's highly unlikely that we would have made the shift from where our ancient ancestors were to where we are today it would be highly unlikely if we weren't borrowing Christian thought, even, even in unchristian places. 
Um, ancient people would have been shocked by the idea that a god would be considered a friend to converse with. Yet in our day, even secular people will try talking to God when they're in distress and on a frequent basis. Um, gods to the ancients were feared and distant, and individual lives were often far less emphasized. So as our culture borrows from Christianity, and it really does, we often take for granted just what's being offered here, that access to God is really an incredible, incredible thing that we can know the one who knows us deeply. So now, who is that available to in this scripture? Is it available to you or to me? That's not what it says. It says it's available to us. That's interesting. We have to look closely and think about this. The, the entire statement is plural and insistently plural. Now, does God know you? Sure, yeah. Does God know me? Of course. But he knows us. He knows all of his people, the united us, which is why we are called in the scripture brothers and sisters. We are jointly related to Jesus. We have confidence, it says. We have a high priest. We draw near together. Our hearts are sprinkled our bodies are washed, and we hold fast to our faith. There's a powerful truth in that that has deep, deep implications. So C.S. Lewis, um, who many of you may have heard of, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and all that, wrote a book called The Four Loves About Friendship. And the book is really rich. It's been a while since I've read it, but there's a big idea in it that is referenced a lot that, that I remember from reading the book And it's about being known. It's about friendship. It's about the possibility of it. And Lewis suggests, and and I think he's right. I've seen this in my own life, that a friendship, a deep friendship, must must be about something else. And here are his words. They can feel a little harsh, but you have to understand, um, I think he was speaking about his past self when he wrote this. He said, this is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never have any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing, or I don't care about truth, I only want a friend, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing there for the friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Apparently, white mice were a thing in his day. Um, Those who have nothing can share nothing, he says. Those who are going nowhere have no fellow travelers. So look, I'm sure you've experienced this. When it feels as if Someone is just drawing from you, like your life force is being moved out of you and nothing's coming back in, right? And that's a very different feeling than when you stand beside someone sharing an affinity and work together on something. It's a very different experience, or you're working on something together. If you want to be known, you need to do something or be about something and find who's with you. Uh, Lewis, and you can put this little picture up, um, and his friends hung out at the Eagle and Child 
apparently all the time. This is a pub in Oxford. And they hung out there and they talked about their writing. And so he had this group of his closest friends and what he was referencing when he talked about this was they weren't just there for the friendship, they loved to write. And so they sharpened each other and they pushed back on each other, but they were about something together. That's what he was talking about. Now imagine the power that would come if not only did you share goals and affinity, but you shared an experience of knowing God as well, right? The shared experience of conversion from darkness to light, the shared aim of building God's kingdom. And a lot of those, those dudes who hung out at the Inklings or with the Inklings, which was their group's name, um, at the Eagle and Child did share deep faith and they sharpened one another. And some of their work, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is one of those, is some of the most powerful material ever, ever written. It continues to impact our culture to this day, and it was sharpened among a group of friends. Well, that's what we're being pointed to here in this scripture, is a deep engagement with a basis that is a shared faith. That's why all the plural language, we, us, this faith is ours. We share this faith, a shared story. It's not about being known, but you become known when you're a product of a bigger story. And you're moving in that direction together. So the basis, I'm saying, is a common faith, a powerful binding agent. Now, the substance of being known. In other words, what do we do to be known? Here in the scripture, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And I think this flows naturally from what we just discussed. When you have a shared faith and mission, you know what good works would be and what love would be. And when, you're able to, when you know one another, you're able to stir one another up effectively. I listen to, uh, I listen to how I bu built this every once in a while, um, and I listen to the story of the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Um, there's another image you can put up there if you want. Greg Solano and Wiley Aranow. Now, this one to me was extremely interesting because the whole like NFT uh, situation still completely blows my mind. So if you don't know what that is, it's a non-fungible token, those things. Um, and you purchase these little images, digital images of things like apes, and, you, and th they're apparently somehow worth something. I'm still, we, we handed out baseball cards. I understood those because they were physical things, digital things. I'm still working on it. Okay, so I listened to the podcast because like how, help me understand. So these two guys were in a, in a writing community and they had an idea. One of them had an idea he shared with the other, and he basically said, hey, I have an idea for NFTs. We could, um, board ape was kind of like a term that, that they, like, would, they would kind of call each other, uh, you know, board apes, I suppose. And then they were, he was like, what if they all were like in a yacht club, and like they all were like in a club, and they all had like different personas, and we created these things. And his buddy said, oh, yeah, I love this idea. Okay, well, here's the thing. So his buddy uh, had been suffering from, he hadn't had a job for 10 years. So one of these two guys, now a billionaire, hadn't had a job in 10 years because he was experiencing chronic pain. And he said the, the hospital bills for, were out the roof, his, his family was struggling, and, and he, now, now he's the CEO of this extremely you know, huge thing. People like, you know, like Paris Hilton paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for one of his little images. And among other people, they're, they're worth 
It's stupid. It's wild how much these things are worth. And, and the guy interviewing uh, said, so, so what happened with the chronic pain? He said, well, once we started, it went away. Weird. Interesting. Now, he, he kind of like reflected on that for a second. Well, once we started, it went away. Well, here's a friend of his who got to know him in a chat room. They knew each other for years. He shared an idea with him that excited him. And I think from what we know about pain, chances are he stopped thinking about the pain because he thought about something they shared, this idea that they were all about. It utterly changed his life. Now, that's over digital media and the exchange of cryptocurrency and those guys. That was the mission. And they built a community around this. There's actually some really interesting stuff. Like when you bought one of them, you entered into a community and you connected with people. So there, were, there was more to it than just little images. But that idea changed this guy's life. Now, how much more potential could there be when the knowledge of your creator is at the center of it? Right? When the community isn't just about cryptocurrency, but it's actually about like eternity. How much more power could there be? Imagine stirring up someone to share their faith and, and expressions of it. I mean, this is, this is what happened with Lewis and Tolkien at the, at the Eagle and Child. They stirred one another up as they talked about their faith, and their faith became integrated into their work. But just like these guys and their idea, I don't think it happens effectively if you don't know someone. It's rare to share an idea like that and stir somebody up when you don't know them. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't speak up early, because I think people have a different, like all of us have different thresholds at which we think we're known, right? I think that's just something I've observed. I used to, I stirred up a guy one time to, to go overseas and work for the International Justice Mission um, to stop human trafficking, but I had one conversation with him, and I didn't even know it happened. He was a, law, a lawyer, and I was like, hey, have you heard these lawyers are, are going into other countries and stopping, stopping the sex trafficking? And he's like, no, I hadn't heard that. I said, well, you should check it out. If you're going to be, become a lawyer, you should do something with it. Years later, I found that's what he did. He did that. He, I, I talked to him like briefly. So I'm not saying you have to know somebody forever, but the more you know somebody, the better chance you have to stir them up to good work. So that's the substance of being known. We, we know each other, and then we stir each other up. We move each other toward love and good works. We must be fellow travelers, or uh, as Paul would say it, co-laborers in Christ. So now the discipline of being known, um, because it doesn't happen without commitments and shared habits, I don't think. Not neglecting, our scripture says here, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now there's, I'm sure there's a number of disciplines that could lead us to this, but and they probably do keep us in tune with God's mission. I think actually Lewis um, and Tolkien at the Eagle and Child, that was a meeting together that was probably really valuable. Actually, think about some of us. Uh, there's a group of us. It's currently all dudes. We used to have a girl who would show up. Uh, we play basketball on Thursdays, and I think we actually get to know each other better there. I mean, some people know that I foul a lot and sometimes yell at people, and that's something they didn't know about me until they played basketball with me. Um, but, but there's, so there's a lot of things you could do. But one thing is simple and time-tested, and that's assembling together for worship. That's what we're doing now, where you recalibrate to the faith and the mission on the day when Jesus rose from the dead every week, and you put your eyes on it, and you return to it, and you're shaped by it, and you're formed by it. And a church like ours, this is our consistent built-in space to be known and to recenter on the faith 
as described. And not only, of course, do we meet here for church, but we're, we're trying to integrate time together. And the more you take advantage of that time together, the, the more you'll be known. And the more you engage with people in what you're hearing, the more your faith will be shared. It's the simplest God-ordained and built-in thing we can do. Now, I didn't always um, personally see the value of this, of doing this. And I understand that, that many of us may not have. So I just want to say briefly that, that history is clear, first of all. There's never been an age of the church when this was not critical to the church's mission to be together, to worship together. Um, it starts, it's a biblical idea that spans the entire scriptures. All the way back in Genesis, the Garden of Eden, we talked about this a while ago. The Garden of Eden was not the entire earth. It was a place on the earth. It was the worship space where you connected with God and where God shaped you and sent you out into the world. They were commanded at creation to set aside a day, a, a day of Sabbath, which was not vacation, but it was a rest in the good works of God and a space and a time for worship. God's law, as soon as it was given on Sinai, commanded the same idea of a day dedicated to God, where you asserted faith and that God was in control and not me. Um, and in the New Testament, believers actually worshiped on the traditional Jewish Sabbath and the next day on the Lord's Day when Jesus rose from the dead, they actually did it more. There's never a time in the Bible where people don't gather together to worship every single week. So that's the history, okay? And, and I think, I want you to see that. I want you to, to understand that. We can talk about that some other time. But even more, I think that we as humans, it's just clear, we need to be re-centered and stirred up to love and good works and brought back to who Jesus is at least once every seven days. I just don't think we can go any longer without it, without being reminded what Jesus has done for us. So, now that said, I want you to notice one more thing, and this is a, a major issue of our time most, most of us, if we have a conversation with somebody about going to church or where they go to church, they are going to say to you, I'm looking for somewhere that blank, does blank for me, where, the, where I get fed by the teaching or where the, the worship is really engaging or something like that, something for me. And this, this scripture, I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say, go and see if anyone stirs you up for good works. It says, you stir one another up for good works. And I think it's really important that we think of ourselves, at, first of all, that we have the dignity to be one of God's people that shapes the church, his community. We really, really are. Um, like, be the presence you wish was at the church. Like, if you wish there's an encouraging person at the church who checked in on you, go encourage others and check in on them. Like, be the thing you want to be there, Right? If you, if you wish that more people were cooking, sign up to cook. If you wish more people were saying hello out in the foyer, talk to Steve. He's trying to organize greeters. Like, that's how it happens. And we really weren't taught ever, or we shouldn't have been, to go look for the service that, that was best for us. We were, we were called to be a part of the body of Christ, to do the stirring up ourselves. So when we go to church and ask, what do others do for me? We evidence we're more formed by a consumer culture than by a servant savior. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life, right? 
and he commanded us to do likewise. This also doesn't apply in the abstract to church leaders. It applies to us all, which is, I hope, dignifying. Like, you all, in God's kingdom, are priests. Like, you minister the gospel to everyone around you and to us, to one another. It's, it's not like the staff's thing. It's all of us. This is a shared mission. Now, I understand, too, that being close and, and being a part of a church, you might say, you know, I've come with an idea and it didn't happen. Or I've wanted something to happen and it and just doesn't work out that way. And, and one of the things that being known, kind of one of the products of being known, is that you might get even pushback from others. In, in every relationship where you're known, that's how it goes. Like, you, you know, some of, some of you want to, be, want to be in relationships, get married. What will happen? You will not just do your thing, you will get some pushback. There will be questions, right? Like, is that really what we should do with our money? Right? That, that happens. It, when you're in a relationship, it can even make you, you feel sometimes insecure. Back to Tolkien and Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien suffered from deep insecurity about his writing because he thought that C.S. Lewis was so much better at it than him. Now, we all know he was a far more technical writer. His creative schemes were far more complex. But Lewis could just write and write and write and write. And Tolkien, just being in Lewis's presence, struggled with insecurity. Like sometimes being in community with people can bring up our own stuff. But it's also where we can get sharpened and where we can grow. So not neglecting the gathering can be complicated, but it is a calling from God. And I think it would refine us far more than just going solo. So the discipline of the gathering fuels being known, and it means we will be stirred up into love and good works. One of the things that grieves me the most, I just have to say this, I've said this before, one of the things that grieves me the most about every time one of you isn't here is that our gathering just isn't as rich. The more of you that are here, you all bring something really, really valuable. And every time one of you isn't able to be here, and and I don't mean that as a guilt trip, we get sick, we have to go out of town. But when you're not able to be here, it's it's just not as good. It's not as rich, okay? And sometimes I think we do fall into the trap of feeling like it's not really life-giving to us, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes serving is just downright exhausting. But sometimes um, you might be offering to somebody exactly what they need that week, the way that on another week they will offer that to you when things are hard. Um, I've really gone down the rabbit hole of reading about Jonathan Charks, who was a, uh, he was a sports commentator who died of cancer recently, who came to Christ because he was invited into a small group and he was given the opportunity on a very secular um, platform to write about his faith. And so he became very interesting to me. But he was asked uh, by the Gospel Coalition, you know, kind of what what was his view? That's Charks. He died this year of a really severe cancer. And, um, And he was asked what his view of going to church was. And he said something to the effect, and this is a new believer, newish believer, he said, well, me and my wife just decided, like, if we're going to do this, we're going to really do it. Like, if we're going to do this following Jesus thing, we're going to show up to all of it. If they're serving, we're going to serve. If they're meeting midweek, we're going to do that. We're going to do church. And, uh, and he was like, it just seemed like if you're going to do it, 
do it. There you go. From the mouth of a new believer. So the basis is our common faith. The substance is to stir one another up. The discipline is showing up. And now the direction of being known, which comes from our text, we are to not neglect the gathering, but encourage one another. Encourage. The aim or direction must be positive. Um, that is the opposite of neglecting, right? Don't neglect the gathering is encourage. Now, something I've been thinking about, I was thinking about this in regard to our church. Um, this is a thing, thing I've thought about in regard to my own life. But many of us, I think, are going through some transitions in our lives. Um, when I think about this little community here, we're in a more diverse life stage than ever before. Um, you know, not to go into like our whole church history lesson here, but if you, if you flash back four to 10 years ago, um, some of us were doing church with like our closest friends who were at a very similar stage of life. And we, we just were. And there was a lot of, of joy in that. I remember uh, dumpster diving when we were planting the church with like four of my best friends and we all were like, let's go to this big dumpster. We're going to find some awesome stuff. And it's weird, right? But it was super fun. It was me and my best friends. And then we were all doing church together. And I'm, and there's only two of us left, me and Andrew Brown. And it's just changed. We're not, we're not the same stage of life. Some people had kids. Some people have had career changes. Some people have, have had other major life-altering changes. And, um, and I think many of us are now experiencing, in a way, what our family, even, even in that time, experienced, and that's being somewhat, you know, within the church, being at a stage alone. I remember when Michaela and I, we were the only ones at one point with a kid in the whole group of our church plant for a while, the only ones with a kid. And then it's like somebody has a baby. Well, they were the only one with a baby, right? Um, and that's... A tough thing to do. And now we're, we're one of two with teenagers. You know, Ponce's, thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, yeah, only, there are only a couple of teenagers. If we look around here, like our age and stage range is very varied. We have people who've been married for a while. We've got a few singles. We've got a few about to be married. We've got a couple, uh, you know, we've got Steve, the stalwart retiree back there. We've got Ed and Grace. They're like, how many people are in your stage? Zero at the moment, right? Like, um, and, and really, like, it's, there's not a lot of uniformity in this room. That's kind of tough. And that means our church has gone through some transitions, some changes. A lot of our friends have, you know, for whatever reason, have moved or something's changed or... It's just different. Now, that's, I think that's just something we need, to, we need to see. We need to understand that's significant. Maybe we just need to acknowledge it um, and, and even just kind of acknowledge that there's some real pain in that. I think one of the most um, neglected things that we grieve is just how friendships change over time. Very rarely do we stop and just, just kind of grieve the way that, that friendships change. So I don't want to gloss over that at all. I acknowledge it. Um, I also want to ask, though, so in a church 
where we're all at very different stages, what could that mean for encouraging one another? If that's the call, if we're to encourage one another. In our newfound diversity, in our varied backgrounds, in our varied stages of life, could we actually have an opportunity to encourage each other deeply? There's something very encouraging about being people, with people who are at the same stage, but there's a lot of potential to encourage when people are at different stages. Like everyone can look around and go, oh, you, you've been where I've never been, or you're experiencing this from a different angle than me. Some of us are earlier in our career, some late, a few retired, some have babies, some have growing families, a couple of us have kids that are starting to eye the car keys. Um, <laughs> Our careers are more varied than ever before. This church used to have like 30 baristas. I don't think we have any anymore, right? <laughs> what happened there? We don't go to cartel. Okay, Jared, we got one. Um, you go to cartel, if Jared's not there, you know, you don't know anybody. That, at our church, it used to be like cartel was the hub, right? It's changed. But I believe that the core of encouragement is knowing other people and offering from what God has given us to them. And diversity can actually be really valuable. It just takes a little more work. It's not as automatic. But encouragement listens and goes beyond differences and offers across boundaries. And Christian encouragement is anchored in our faith, which is something that we share. 20-somethings, you have a powerful impact on teenagers and, and younger kids. I remember there was, I went to a camp. There's this 18-year-old dude named Kelly who was like super good at sports, I looked at that man the way that I look at like 50-year-olds now or 60-year-olds. Well, here's the point. <laughs> I looked up to him. Like I thought he knew everything about life. That dude was a moron. I guarantee you, he was 18. He had no idea about anything in life, right? When I was 18, I didn't know anything. But I didn't know that. When I was a kid, I looked at this dude at camp. I just remember I followed him everywhere. If you're in your 20s or so, that's you. You are that for the people who are younger than you. And then, right, I used to think 40-year-olds were ancient, like about to die, <laughs> right? And here we are. I'm, I'm there. Yeah, you Darians, you're, we're in that. Whew. What happened? But, um, you know, in my mind, sometimes I think in my mental age is still in my 20s. I still think like, oh, I'm learning some stuff. No, I'm 40. And then 20-year-olds think we know what we're doing. Maybe we do. Maybe sometimes we do, right? Retired folks, Mary, Courtney, Steve, time, perspective. You've got time, right? Steve has said this to me. I have time. We have things that we can share, ways that we can encourage one another. So let's use it. Let's do something with it. And finally, though, um, and I think very important is the destination of being known. All, all the more, this is all framed under these, this is how it ends. We encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. All of a sudden, we're pointed to the return of Jesus Christ victorious to the earth. Whoa, what's that about? When Jesus makes things right, makes the sad things come untrue, all of a sudden we're pointed to the return of Jesus. Um, why? Well, Paul 
when he writes to the Corinthian church, um, he's encouraging people to love in 1 Corinthians 13. And then he zooms out big picture to the love of God, which I think can help us frame what it means to think about the return of Jesus. He says, love never ends. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, since Paul there was talking about love, he most likely means that now we experience partial love and partially being known. And we know that that's true. No one can love us and know us enough, right? We always feel the ache of not being understood. I, I had a leak. Uh, John and Cruz got to help me with this on my truck in my gas tank, my old Ford. Um, and, it, and I would fill it up with gas, and then my gas gauge would start to go down, and it started to stink inside of the truck. I think that's a metaphor for us. Um, we get filled up, it leaks right out, and it starts to stink, right? We're incapable of holding the love that we receive. Love is the fuel we need to live and love others well. And sometimes, even when we receive the love of others, it's not enough. It never ends up satisfying. It's never, it never holds. Because of our brokenness, the love we receive is imperfect, or because of their brokenness, the love we receive is, is always imperfect. And because of our brokenness, our ability to hold it is imperfect. And it just gets contaminate, contaminated and it leaks right out. The book of Jeremiah is a, a book about a preacher pleading with God's people on God's behalf. And in the, sec, in the second chapter, God speaks of his love relationship with God's people. He says this in, in chapter 2, 2 and 3. Remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And then just a little bit later down, Jeremiah illustrates the impact of their sin. And God says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now think about like rainwater harvesting for a second, those big cisterns we see next to houses. It's like God would say to them, look, you've rejected the love that I rained down from the heavens. And not only that, you've made containers that rust and leak You've turned from the source of love to rely on the love that cannot satisfy. And on top of that, you can't even hold that love when you get it. That's us. When we put too much hope in being known by people and miss the direction of all knowing, all knowing is just a reminder that there's a source of ultimate love. Every husband-wife relationship, right? Right? Every friendship, every smiling face is just a shadow and a signpost speaking to us that something far more ultimate and capable of filling us up and fueling us forward is real, and that is what we truly need. And that's why all Christian community needs to anchor itself in the return of Jesus. That is to say, it understands its incompleteness, its inability to satisfy. We will never 
ever satisfy one another. But we know that. We understand our deep need and assert our deep hope that we will know fully. We'll know fully the one who right now completely knows us. Without such hope, we will suck people dry. And all the while, even the love that they give will leak right out. We, we need to remember the fountain of living water and allow him to form us into vessels that do not break down, but can hold and savor the love that we receive. And that is why we meet together, not based on one another, but based on the person and work of Jesus. So this evening, the invitation will be, as always, not to come up here and receive anything from me, not to come up here and receive the love of one another even. We're gathered together. It's us receiving the servant love, the sacrificial love, the, the breaking of the one who knows us, who's made Christ in Christ has made God accessible so that we can know the one who fully knows us. When we know that deeply, when we're satisfied by that, we'll be able to live in an imperfect community and still give ourselves deeply. And what we're going to do next is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and there's going to be two minutes of silence. And if you're anything like me, um, that level of knowing God, um, there's a long way to go. And there's much that we don't know. And I think we need to continually come back to him and confess that we're drawing from all the other sources, but we forget the fountain of life. Spend two minutes in silence meditating on that, praying about that, asking God to open us to his love. Afterward, we'll, uh, we'll sing together. And let that singing just be, let it be a recalibrating moment. To, to just fix your sights on the one who completes us. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and then we'll eat spooky food, um, whatever that is, uh, together and hang out. So let's pray, and then there'll be two minutes for you. Father in heaven, thank you for this, uh, this group of people you've brought together. We have been through a lot of change. Um, we really do. We grieve the friends who aren't here anymore, not just not at church, but who've moved out of town or whose lives have changed, who even um, are asking big questions about faith and aren't really walking with you. We, we, we grieve it. We miss our friends. For some of us, um, there's even family members we, we don't really talk to as much. We're, we're not as, as close as we'd like to be. We, we want to be known. It's a deep longing of our souls. And God, I pray that you would meet us in our grieving, that you would provide for us deep relationships, but ultimately, ultimately, that in our longing, we would see you, the one who can satisfy, and that we would find you, and that we would share you and come into this space to serve others, to give out of the fullness of drinking from the fountain of life. So as we pray, lead us into these things and comfort our souls. In Jesus' name.